Good morning. It's a true honor to be here and share the Word of God with you all this morning. Uh, before I begin, though, I just wanted to take some time out to recognize perhaps those that uh, served in our VBS the past week, that video that you saw. So if you volunteered, if you were a teacher, could you just rise from your seat? I know a lot of them have gone to the children's ministry to volunteer as well, but yeah, rise from your seat if you helped this uh, past week's VBS. And thank you so much. Um, I have said that uh, this past VBS was probably the best VBS we've ever had. And maybe the second best, but probably the best. And uh, we've had two VBSs so far, but I'm sure it'll get better and better and we'll continue to raise the bar by God's grace. I was so proud of all our volunteers, um, especially our younger ones who came out and spent the week uh, just blessing our children and um, really investing uh, just as we have been invested into when we were younger and we, when we went to church for a lot of us. So as we begin today, let's uh, begin with a prayer. Our God and Father, we ask you, imploring you, since all fullness of wisdom and light is found in you, to mercifully enlighten us by your Holy Spirit in the true understanding of your word, and to give us grace to receive it in true fear and humility. May we be taught by your word to place our trust only in you and to serve and honor you as we should, so that we may glorify your holy name in all our living and edify our neighbor by our good example, rendering to God the love and obedience which faithful servants owe their masters and children their parents, since it has pleased you to graciously receive us among the number of your servants and children. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so today's passage, we'll be going over the 24th chapter of the first book of Samuel. But if you, um, if you can at this time, please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 24. We'll be reading the first seven verses as we begin this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 1 through 7, and you can find that on a pew Bible on page 231. When you have found it, please rise from your seats as we read the word of God. Hear now the word of the Lord. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words, and did not permit them to attack Saul. 
And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. If you have been attending our church for a while, then you know that uh, we are of a particular uh, proclivity, in a sense. Um, some people would say that, oh, Pastor Gene, you're, you're more on the conservative side, aren't you? And I believe that in our day and age, we have been shown one or two things that you could be. You could either be a conservative or a liberal slash progressive. But I want to contend to you this morning as we continue on with understanding what godly discernment is, is that these two words are really from the Christian faith. To be conservative is to conserve what is good and say, oh, this is good. This has been passed down to us. Let's conserve it. Let's keep at it. And to be liberal is to understand that there is freedom in following the laws of the Lord. If there is truth and we follow truth, there truly is libertas in veritas. There is liberty in truth. And so when we see that these two things were to function to glorify God in our bodies, in our communities, especially in our churches, it's kind of sad for me to see that we have separated these two things now. And to be conservative is now to, for some reason, conservatism just means in today, in 2022, for a lot of people, it just means, I want to live the way I want to live, don't bother me. You can live the way you want to live, and I won't bother you. Almost a libertarian kind of philosophy. And to be liberal is to, be this, to have this progressive ideology, as if these, the things that we were supposed to conserve are actually bad and evil. And so we need to go away from these values that we used to hold dear as fast and far away from it as we can. And then we can consider ourselves to be liberal or progressive. And so that's an interesting kind of dichotomy that we face today in our political age. But if we truly understand the meanings of these words, then I do believe that we are to be conservative to conserve what is good, what is noble, what is beautiful, what is right, what is pure, to conserve these things, to think about these things, and also to live in freedom, to live in liberty, for the truth shall set you free, is what our Savior said. But this kind of thinking escapes many of us now. And so when we say the word conservative, immediately a picture comes into mind, and when we think of the word liberal, immediately another picture comes into mind. I wanted to start off by saying that because the topic of today's sermon has been a prayer of mine for this generation for a very long time, that we be a generation of godly discernment. Discernment escapes those who do not have character. Discernment eludes those who covet unlawful gain. And discernment is excluded from those who readily give in to sin. Instead of building character, we'd rather build social profiles. Instead of working hard to earn a dollar, we're looking for the easiest buck to make. And instead of lauding righteousness, yearning for holiness, and seeking after truth, these qualities are actually mocked today, even ridiculed. They're called stuffy, confining, suffocating. 
things of a godly nature lulls us to sleep, when the wiles of the world enrapture and hypnotize us, they get us to this place of just shaking and excitement. We have a generation of men beholden to pornography, women enslaved to social envy, and both are enslaved to bitterness. Have you ever taken time to think about it? Why men are drawn to women, not their wives, and women charmed by things outside of their homes? I mean, the answer is sin. The answer is sin. It's because of sin. But in particular, one of those sins that we are recognizing is that we don't like authority. We say things like, no one can tell me what to do. And by throwing off these quote-unquote shackles from outside authority, we can make ourselves then into the ultimate authority because I want it, because I need it, because I deserve it. I am my ultimate authority is what we think. No one is better than me, and if anyone is better than me, it's because the system is corrupt. If anyone does better than me, it's because the system is corrupt. It's not me. It's because of these institutions, and they need to be rebuilt. It's not me. These naysayers next to me, that's their fault. We'll call them racists, bigots, misogynists. We'll put whatever label on those people, and it doesn't matter as long as they're labeled as people that are holding me back. And think about it. Our vice president, the vice president of the United States, said this this past week, and I'm going to quote from her exactly, word for word. <clears throat> so when we talk about equality, well, that's a good goal, but let us not presume that because everyone should be treated equal that they start out on equal footing. So equity as a concept says, recognize that everyone has the same capacity but in order for them to have equal opportunity to reach that capacity, well, we must pay attention to this issue of equity if we are to expect and allow people to compete on equal footing." Unquote. Now notice what she is saying in that word salad. The concept is directly from critical theory where we get critical race theory and other similar branches. The premise that she starts out with it's not just hers alone. This is a broad understanding that people have adopted that she is just espousing because she has the pulpit, she has the stage. It's not just her. The premise that she starts out with to define equity is this, that we all have the same capacity. We all have the same capacity. That means that the only reason I don't have something is because I wasn't then given that equal opportunity someone else had when they succeeded. And what she is saying is that the government then, the government is the solution. The government must put everyone on equal footing if we are to have equity. Now, even after you clear up the word salad, there are so many things wrong with that statement Sometimes I can't help but to wonder, perhaps, they are saying things in such an unclear manner so that no one will be able to pinpoint their error. It makes them, in that sense, above criticism. 
Her entire statement was nonsensical, but the reason why people buy into this idea of equity is because it's that understanding that I told you about before. I deserve it. It's that understanding of I deserve it and it's on steroids, meaning that it's amplified to an even greater and more dangerous degree. Critical theory is I deserve it, but on steroids. And by the way, this form of government that we are seeing right now does not lift up the downtrodden, the poor, the ones that can't afford $5 a gallon for gas and $7 for milk. They don't lift up. They can only cut off other people by the knees. The idea that we have the exact same capacity when given the same opportunity is idiotic. It doesn't hold true for any field of study, sport, talent, or any gifting at all. That's like saying in a golf course, everyone should hit their driver 294 yards. And if not, we'll make adjustments so that every person's drive from the tee is 294 yards. I get that because the average pro golfer hits their driver 294 yards. Not only that, when you continue to go on this mentality, then we'll have to put everyone's golf ball right into the middle of the fairway. And you know who would really like that? The really bad players. The really bad players who don't know how to work on their game without studying what could be wrong with their swing or how they could improve. You should just be able to hit it as far as the pros. You deserve it. You are entitled to it. And what happens when you start to make adjustments like this, even in a simple game? Well, it can never end with just the driver off the tee. It needs to go to your second shot, your third shot, and so forth. And you ruin the game. What happens when you do this and put the same principle into the economy? Well, you ruin the economy too. Because it's not how any of this stuff works. We don't all have the same capacity in anything to expect it. To think that you're entitled to it, that's all. That's all. During the sermon series, I've gone through many instances of Saul really mucking things up. And yet, how many of us thought, how many of us thought when we were listening to this, wait, that's me, that's me. How many of us thought that? When I get power, I get envious. That's all. Well, that's me. When I lack something, I go straight into self-pity. That was Saul. How many of us thought, wait, that's me. When I get bored, I just don't want to listen. I do what I want to do, even though someone in authority would tell me not to, because, you know what, it makes sense to me. That's all. Everyone, when reading this, thinks they're David. They think they're the man after God's own heart. But if you have an entire generation given into envy, immorality, jealousy, boredom, and everyone thinks that in this generation that they're David, then you know something is off. And why is that? And I will come back to, we are a generation that is in dire need of godly discernment. The fact is that we do not have all the same capacity. We have not been given the same capacity. We don't all have the same skills, 
talent, not even wealth. We don't all have the same brain power, IQ, or athleticism. Think of how fun basketball would be if anything you did, whether you missed or you made the shot, it always counted as three points. And I'm going to give you a simple answer to why this is. Why are people different in their giftings and capacities? In Ephesians 4, 7 to 8, it says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. You know why we have different capacities? It's because God gave his people different capacities. It's according to his measure. It's according to his wisdom. You have been given what you have been given. It's according to his will. So when there is this deep sense of resentment toward what I have received, then who am I really resenting? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And if I receive something, why do I act like it's all me? If I can hit a driver off the tee 300 yards, that's all me? That's what we think. If I make some money, if I make a million dollars a year, that's all me? Why do you boast as if you did not receive it? When you feel entitled to any of the gifts that you have, what happens is that your heart will naturally become hardened over time. I deserve this. I'm entitled to this. I just want this. This just, this, I just want this small thing. I just want this one thing. Is that too much to ask? That will be our response. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 to 16, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he says this about discerning between the two kinds of people, the softened heart and the hardened heart. And he, goes, he says this, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And so as it is, if you have the mind of Christ, you will attain godly discernment. It's the Holy Spirit that will instruct you through his word and give you the strength to accomplish what is required of you. In today's text, we are being shown that the man of God, this is the man after God's own heart, this is what he will do given one specific circumstance. And I'm really just going to focus on about four verses in this entire chapter. And it's these four verses that everything else hinges on, verses 4 to 7. But we are going to learn what David did when he was tested when he was put in a circumstance, a scenario. And so before we get to verses 4 to 7, I'd like to get to the first three verses. The writer gives us three verses, just three very short verses to set us up 
and to give us a backdrop for about what's to happen. It's only three short verses, and it's good that we pay attention. First, he doesn't tell us anything about what happened with Saul and the Philistine raiders. Remember, Saul went back after chasing David in the rock of escape to fight Philistine raiders that had come into their land. There are no details given. So we, we, we don't know what happened. But we can gather since Saul went after David soon after he dealt with the Philistines, that Saul wasn't then utterly defeated. Perhaps he even won against the Philistines. Perhaps he won that fight against the raiders. But the point is, it's not important. Because once he hears that David is in En Gedi, he's in this En Gedi wilderness, Saul takes 3,000 choice men, the best of the best, to go after David and his men. It's toward wild goat rocks they go. And you could gather by the name, this was a wilderness, and they were in a rocky area where wild mountain goats were. So that's the picture that's being drawn. But sometimes, or somewhere in that wilderness, he finds a bunch of sheepfolds. Sheep are not wild. They are tame animals. They are farm animals. So here is Saul. Once he gets his intelligence reports that David is in the desert of En Gedi, he takes 3,000 Navy SEALs and ends up in a place where there are domesticated animals. And by the way, there are about 3,000 Navy SEALs that we have right now. Saul probably thought to himself, here's the domesticated animal place. It's probably okay to relax a bit. And then he goes into one of the caves there to, quote, relieve himself, unquote. The literal words in the Hebrew means cover his feet. So it goes, Saul went into one of the caves to cover his feet. So you can imagine what he, he was doing is his, if his feet were covered. And at the end of these intro verses, we have these final words. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And then the scene is set. That's the scene. And so there are three quick sections. Again, the last two are quicker, but I really want to focus on verses 4 to 7. So that first section I'm going to call the test. We have the test, the appeal, and the assurance, but it's first the test. As Saul is relaxing, I'm sure David and his men couldn't help and couldn't even believe the good fortune that met them at that moment. Could you have imagined how wide the eyes of David's men must have gotten when they saw Saul enter the cave and put himself into that vulnerable position? And this is what they say to David. Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. They are excited. They're, they're even quoting some oracle that they probably heard once before. And there, here's the oracle, David. It's coming true. Let's go. That's how excited they were. And so what does David do? David gets up and stealthily cuts off a piece of Saul's robe. And that takes skill to go next to someone and cut off a piece of their robe. That word, stealthily, has connotations of magic. 
That's how skilled David was. And that's, uh, I think that's something that we can aspire to be if we want to be stealthy. Be as stealthy as David, as someone is relieving themselves and cut off a piece. No, don't do that. But that's how skilled he was. He went in and out like magic. But after he does this, it says his heart struck him. Why would he feel bad about doing this? Why would anyone feel bad about doing this? Here is this man who is going after you day after day and won't rest until you're dead, telling everybody in the entire country how terrible you are, not only spreading bad rumor, destroying your reputation, but literally trying to kill you, to end you. But why would David feel bad about this? It's because David was a man of faith. And one could gather that he listened to Samuel, the prophet, when he spoke. And there was one instance in chapter 15 where Samuel would tell Saul that his kingdom will be taken away from him. And then Saul would lunge after Samuel in chapter 15, grab a hold of Samuel's robe, and a piece of that robe would tear off and Samuel would say just as this robe has been torn off so your kingdom will be torn away from you that was the prophecy and one can imagine David knew of this prophecy so what David does is he cuts off a piece of Saul's robe it's presumably to receive that symbolism that started with Samuel but immediately his heart felt like it took a devastating blow. And he tells his men that Saul is sacrosanct. He says, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. David considered the servant of God to be set apart by God. And what is set apart by God is to be conserved or preserved because in that separation from the world, there is then a special relationship with God. And just like when common items are separated for holy use, we treat those separated items differently. If we look at the communion table, there are things that would seem common to us, but because we have separated them, we treat them holy. Hence, this one commentator would write, Hence, to touch, defile, and attack the anointed one was to approach the Lord himself and to seek to defile harm and remove the Lord from his rightful place. David understood, it's God that set up Saul as king. So if I forcibly remove him then, then I am actually going up against God. So imagine you have been running away into deserts and wildernesses. It's not a pretty sight. There is no running water. There is no plumbing, right? There is no, there's no food that's readily available, nothing refrigerated. You're always living in fear for your life because this lunatic wants to kill you for no good reason. You didn't do anything except just live, and he wants to kill you. And the true king says that even though Saul had been delivered up into their hands like dinner on a silver platter, that they can't do anything. That's what the king tells his men. 
How would you feel if you were David's men and you ran with David only to hear this from David? Apparently, it says that David had to persuade his men not to attack Saul. He had to persuade his men not to attack Saul. The word once is only translated, this Hebrew word is only translated persuade only once in the entire Old Testament. The other times it's used as a verb, it's translated to tear open, to tear open. David had to tear open his men not to attack Saul. Persuade might sound a little too soft then for what really happened, but David succeeded because it says that Saul rose up and left the cave. And let's go back for a moment. What's wrong with killing Saul? David killed many men before, and they were his enemies as well. And this one was just delivered up to him, all gift-wrapped with a nice little bow tie. But David was able to discern the truth. Saul was God's anointed, so he dare not touch him. He could have killed Saul and become king of Israel, something prophesied to him by Samuel when he was just a boy. Now how long has it been? How long has it been since the prophecy? And what are the thoughts that must have gone through his head? What are the thoughts that would have gone through your head if all this time has passed since that prophecy, you're going to be made king? What if I'm too old? Am I even going to enjoy this kingship? How long has it been? What if I get killed before? And what if, what if, what if? Those are the thoughts that could have ran through David's mind. Those are the thoughts that would have ran through mine, most definitely. But the kingdom of God will not be established by man's will or his methods. It must be done God's way. God's will in David's life must come to pass in God's way. Uh, there is this renowned thinker today who's living today who was talking about politics and conspiracies. And I was listening to this interview, and what he said in the interview was pretty shocking. He believed that even if the conspiracies were true, and this he was talking about the conspiracy of voter fraud, and that's why this current administration is in power. And he is obviously not of... Um, you know, of the weaker party. He's of the dominant party right now. And so, a dominant political party. And so he believed that even if the conspiracies were true, that people committed voter fraud to have this person now be our president, that's okay. That's okay in his mind. This is a brilliant person. It's okay in his mind because it would prevent the U.S. from electing a horrible person. And I believe in the interview, he compared him with Hitler. Apparently, everyone you don't like in politics is now Hitler. And the question was posed back in the interview. The question was posed back to the interviewer. Wouldn't you also commit something like voter fraud if you could have stopped Hitler from coming into power? Let's say you live back in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And wouldn't you also commit voter fraud if it could have stopped Hitler from coming into power? 
The guy interviewing was shocked. He was shocked because the understanding that we have is that one of the primary principles of a democracy is fair and free elections. If you don't have fair and free elections, you don't have a democracy. You have something else. But this is the point. When people look at politics today, when people try to discern what is good, what is right, what we should go toward, they think differently than David would have thought. Because for God's people, the ends do not justify the means. If you believe that God has destined you to be rich, God has destined you to be rich, it doesn't mean that you can steal cheat or deceive others into getting what you want just because he's destined you to be rich it could be god's will for you to be married and to consummate that marriage but it doesn't mean you can do to your girl or boyfriend or anyone else for that matter what is meant only for husband and wife that includes watching pornography that debases the mind corrupts the soul and weakens the spirit It could be God's will for you to have a wonderful home, but that doesn't mean you can tear down others in order to make yours look better. The ends do not justify the means. David understood this, even when his men did not, and he stood by that principle. David's son, eventual son, would also face a similar test When the devil would take him and show him all the kingdoms of the world, and he would say, all these I give to you, son of David, I give to you if you fall down and worship me. All the kingdoms of the world were destined for Jesus. It was. It was meant for Jesus. And the devil offered it to him to take the easy way out. Take the shortcut. No pain and all gain. Why wouldn't you take this? If this was offered to you, why wouldn't you take this? You wouldn't take it because it is a lie. God's will must be done in God's way. The means have everything to do with the ends. They are not separated. Jesus knew that he couldn't accomplish what he set out to do by following the devil's plan, the easy way. But he had to take God's way, which was through the humiliation and the terrible agony that he went through on the cross. And this kind of temptation finds us as well. Don't wait till you're married. Gratify yourself now. Don't legitimately build your portfolio by working earnestly. Fudge the numbers a little, even the dates on your resume, and then you have a really good-looking resume. Here's the secret to getting rich. Buy this book and follow these 13 principles. See, not only on earthly matters, but perhaps even more detrimental to us is our deceiving ourselves concerning sanctification. Sometimes I wonder why people ask for revival. 
Because by revival, I'm afraid that many people just mean sanctification without the sweat and toil. Just give it to me without the work, God. Just make me holy. Just go, and all of a sudden, I'm this other person. Without the work, you're all of a sudden just holy. All of a sudden, you have a halo around your head. And you're neglecting what Hebrews 12:1 says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. No endurance. I don't want endurance, God. I just want it quick. Give it to me quickly. But that's not discernment. That's giving in to a lie. And you know what means are necessary if you have godly discernment. This was, in fact, Paul's prayer for the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 9 to 11. It says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And this is also my prayer for this generation as well. My prayer for you all is that you may be filled with godly discernment. And let's quickly go on to what happens afterwards. There is an appeal made. My Lord, the king, and Saul looked behind him, and David was bowed face down to the earth, paid homage. And before Saul could say anything, it says in verse 9, why do you, this is what David says, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. This is what David says. He gives a mini speech before Saul can say anything. He's leaving the cave and David falls face, ground, face to the ground. This section is called the appeal. Why is it the appeal? Who is he making the appeal to? If you listen closely, is he really making the appeal to Saul? He's making an appeal to God. He's saying the Lord will be judge between me and you, and the Lord will be my avenger. This is what also escapes perhaps some in our understanding of vengeance, vengeance belongs to God. We give it to God. 
but God will have vengeance on his enemies. Some people are like, oh, this is kind of very mean, isn't it? Isn't it mean to wish violence or to, to think about violence on the enemies that you have? And the answer is no. No. I think that is a lack of discernment on the part of many. You've become soft. You don't understand what sin does. You don't understand how damaged we become when we continue to let sin thrive and continue to grow in our communities, and you don't do anything about it because you think vengeance is wrong. However, the people of God don't have vengeance. They don't actually carry out vengeance themselves, but the people of God give it to God. They commit it to God. Look at all the Psalms, the imprecatory Psalms. It says, in your faithfulness, destroy them in Psalm 54. It says, break the teeth in their mouths, O God. And it would also say in Psalm 139, if only you would slay the wicked, O God. These are Psalms that our psalmist wrote. And some people might listen to this and they might be confused. How do you pray imprecatory Psalms? How do you, is it okay to be angry, and yes, it's okay to be angry. Paul also said, "In your be angry and do not sin. It's a, it's a literal command. It says, be angry, but do not sin. And there are things we ought to be angry about. There are things that we should understand. Now we are held by our Western sentimentality. That when we see like people, our own brethren, dying and being tortured, Day after day in countries like China and Iran, all we do is, oh well. But vengeance is mine, says the Lord. God will have vengeance. These countries will not survive because God is king over all. And this is what we declare. That's an obedient prayer. God, take vengeance into your hands. In 1661, there was something called the Drunken Parliament. This is where Charles II would kill these people of God. These are the church of God, and just because they didn't follow his way, he would kill them. There is a a man named James Guthrie. He's a martyr. He's something that people call a covenanter. And he was to be hanged at the cross of Edinburgh. And his head was supposed to be lopped off. It's supposed to be cut off, and his head would be publicly displayed. His estate, his, all his belongings would be confiscated. His children would not be able to take any of it. They are declared incapable. In any future day, his holds, all the generations after him, would not be able to hold office, possession, lands, goods in the, king, in the United Kingdom, in England. And after this, they took Guthrie's headless corpse and placed it in a coffin and brought it to Old Kirk Isle. And there, a number of respectable ladies prepared his body for a burial. One gentleman was looking at this, and this is what's being recorded. Uh, One gentleman present noticed that these ladies, some of the ladies would dip their napkins in the blood of the martyr. And then he would say, you, he would accuse them of performing a, quote, piece of popish superstition. And then one lady spoke up in defense of what she was doing. She was dipping napkins in the blood of the recently killed or martyred James Guthrie. 
And this is what she said, we intend not to abuse it to superstition or idolatry, but to hold that bloody napkin up to heaven with our address that the Lord would remember the innocent blood that is spilt. That is the appeal. The appeal that Christians have is to the Lord's justice where he will, wrong, he will right the wrongs. He will take care of what is wrong and make it right. When we think that vengeance, oh, it's too harsh, it's too, it's too severe, shouldn't we all have kindness? We do not understand the severity of sin. What happens when people's heads are being lopped off just because they're Christian? It's still happening today. Where are our prayers for those that have gone up to heaven, those generations that have been left behind because innocent blood was spilt. When our nation abandoned Afghanistan, there were hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions of Christians that were brought out, tortured, killed in front of their communities. And what did we do as a church? Did we pray for them? Or did we just forget about it? Did we think, oh, that's just politics. It's not politics. It's your lack of discernment. It's your lack of understanding. Because these are our brothers and sisters going through this suffering, and we're just sitting here. That's not what happens. David understands the appeal to be made, and that appeal is to God. He commits vengeance to God. The Lord be judge is what he says. Here's the last part. In verses 16 to 22, this is how we finish the chapter. This is the assurance that God gives. And this is interesting. In this section, we see that even though Saul was and is David's enemy, Saul doesn't end here. He goes, you know what? I'm going to leave you alone. Just promise not to hurt my family and things like that. Saul goes after him again in the, in the continuing chapters. Saul, there's, there's, Saul, just, Saul just, yeah, Saul. But the assurance that we get sometimes is even from our enemies is the point. Even the enemies of God will give assurance to God's people. I'll end with that story. There is a letter that we have, and it's in the beginning of the American Civil War. And this is what the letter said. Um, it's, it's by this um, person named uh, Richard Ewell, but uh, this is what it says. There is one West Pointer, I think, in Missouri, little known, and whom I hope the northern people will not find out. So he's obviously from the south, and he went to West Point, okay? I mean Sam Grant. I knew him well at the academy and in Mexico. I should fear him more than any of their officers I have yet heard of. He is not a man of genius, but he is clear-headed, quick, and daring. Sam Grant is who we know as Ulysses S. Grant. S stands for Sam. And he may have a lot of detractors in the North. People didn't like him too much. But General Richard Ewell of the Confederacy knew this person was a man of competence. Why? Because of his skill? Because of his talent? No, because of his character. 
something that even your enemies would be, should be able to see is, I may hate you, but you are a man, you are a woman of character. And that's David's situation here. And I believe that he should be greatly hardened when his enemy confirms, even his enemy confirms God's promise. And if God can speak through a donkey, God can speak through angels in the sky, yes, he can speak through a deranged king. And this is when, perhaps, that Saul does recognize David's coming kingship, but, you know, whether he accepts it or not, we see that he doesn't, but whether he accepts it or not is a different story. And so David is assured. And I end with this. In verse 22, I don't want to lose this point either because this is a sermon about discernment. It says in verse 22, David swore this to Saul. He said, I'm not going to cut off your father's house. I'm not going to touch you because you're the Lord's anointed, things like that. And then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. David is not stupid. He is not naive. He has no illusions about the real reality of his situation. Saul will go home, but David wisely doesn't trust him. He and his men go up to the stronghold. That's what it says. This is what discernment does. It doesn't make godly discernment. Being a Christian doesn't mean you should be naive, but it means you should be wise. That's exactly what discernment is. It's tied in with wisdom. And so this is the chapter that we see. And what can we get from this? I believe what we can get from this is there's a lot for us to learn. There's a lot for us to study. We are not there yet. And for us to understand this means that we must first put ourselves in a place of humility. I don't know yet. I am like Saul more than I am like David. And putting yourself in a place of humility puts yourself in a place of learning in a place of growth, in a place where God will mold your heart and change you and transform you. Sometimes I do wonder, I was reminded of um, <clears throat> of a time I went to the Bergen County Jail with a bunch of us and I shared this story, but I shared this story again with a friend who had visited from uh, overseas. He actually is from England and I was sharing the story again. He was like, yeah. And he really loves prison ministry. Uh, there were these people, and then I was asked to speak, pretty short notice, I was asked to speak in front of these convicts, and some of them were murderers, they, they had these jumpsuits on, then you know that they're there for life or violent crime. And um, they were all sitting, like you guys are sitting. When I started to open the Bible, I just opened up the Bible to Genesis chapter 1, and I started explaining verse by verse what that meant. And these men, these convicted felons, who were serving time, many of them for life. And some of them, I looked at them. Some of them had arms that were bigger than my head. I think they could have just went like this and crushed me if they wanted to. They were huge. But they were all, and some of you went with me. You know this is true. They were all sitting at the edge of their seats listening to the Word of God. I think that's the attitude. That's the attitude of a humble heart. That's the attitude of someone who wants to grow in discernment, who understands that if we reject the wisdom of God, that's true folly. That's when we are foolish. That's when we think we deserve it, when we think we know better, when we think that we are the ultimate authority. 
That's when we are foolish. And so David is an example for us to follow, but more importantly, the example that David points to when Jesus was here on this earth. He did God's will, God's way, perfectly. And he commands us now to follow him. Take up your cross and follow me. That means we do things God's way. And there we become the church. And we see God reigning through the church. Let's remember what we have been taught through the word of God this morning. And I pray that we can live out lives of godly discernment in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that you give us that you don't leave us to our own devices, you don't leave us to our own thoughts, our own capacities, for we recognize that they are lacking. They are not enough. But Lord, you give us your Son, you give us your Word, you give us your Holy Spirit. And so now help us to live out the life you have called us to live in the way we ought to live it. Teach us your ways, O God. And help us to become the holy church you have called us to be. A holy bride, beautiful to you, waiting for your coming. Forgive us of the times where we thought we knew better. Forgive us of the times where bitterness and envy invaded and penetrated our lives. And help us not to be humble people, ready and willing to be changed, to be transformed. Let's take this time to pray and lift up our hearts to God and ask God, to do the transforming work in our lives. For it is he who changes. It is he who transforms the minds to make it conform, not to this world, but to make it like his. Let's pray.